If you would, turn with me in God's word to 1 Thessalonians 4. And this is sort of a teaser because we're not actually going to settle there. Let's begin reading in 4.13 down to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though through Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul is not writing an eschatological treatise here. He's not giving us a systematic theology on eschatology. He, he, he's trying to do something very pastoral in this text, and I think it's very important that we focus our attention on that this morning, because this is a practical text to the Thessalonians. It was meant to comfort and encourage them. Therefore, I'm not going to get into all the details of the nuts and bolts of this text today, because I want to focus on the reason it is given. And the purpose for which eschatology should be the subject that we study and not something we just kind of play around with or we like to argue about. Something that actually has practical importance to our daily life is found in the study of the end, the end things, the last things. So before I try to connect all the eschatological dots in this passage in particular, which they are rich and full, and before I try to... uh, point out all the details surrounding the future and final eschatological hope that we have, I want to take you now to 1 Peter chapter 1. And really, we're going to only look at one verse, though we'll read many. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. I want to take you here, I think because it's, it's analogous to what Paul is doing there in Thessalonica. I think that it is meant to be a place of encouragement when we think about the end, when we think about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the last day, the day of his return, the day of his reign here on earth coming to fruition. So I want to go here in verse 13 in particular today to help set our minds on the practical hope that's revealed in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And I want to do that because the future hope that's referred to in both these passages are meant to practically comfort the saints in the immediate context and us today. And not only comfort them, but also motivate them, not only in the past, but here now today in the present. I don't, again, want to get wrapped up in trying to figure out which position you hold I frankly think there's only one biblical one, and I'm preaching it to you, or I wouldn't be preaching it. I'll divulge exactly what it is the next time I preach. In the meantime, let your theology and your eschatology be driven by the text. That's what I would ask of you today. 
This is a very practical subject to study because that's why God gave it. It is meant to actually change us in the present as we think about the future. And I think it's interesting. I was reading something by Spurgeon that helped me see this, that, that that's the way he looked at eschatology. That's the way he looked at the end times, the last things. He, he focused on the hope that is in the truth about the last things, about Christ and his return. And it helped him practically. Here's what he wrote. He said this. It is a very blessed thing to be on the watch for Christ. It is a blessing to us now. How it detaches you from the world. You can be poor without murmuring. You can be rich without worldliness. You can be sick without sorrowing. You can be healthy without presumption. If you're always waiting for Christ's coming Untold blessings are wrapped in all that glorious hope. Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Blessings are heaped up one upon another in the state of heart in which a man is always looking for his Lord. So says Spurgeon. And Spurgeon rebukes me when he says this. When I read things like this by men like that that actually studied this carefully, I don't agree with everything Spurgeon concluded, but he studied this carefully, but he did it with a practical intention of manifesting encouragement to the saints through this doctrine. When I read what he says about it, I have to confess that I don't think about this as often as I ought to. I don't fix my mind, as Peter will say, on this great eschatological hope as often as I should. And so that's one reason I want us to go here this morning to look at 1 Peter 1, 1 to 19, and we'll focus on verse 13. I want to do this because I had a lot of good comments from the sermon last month. A lot of encouraging conversations and, and questions came up, but I do have a fear about our being enamored with our eschatological positions and not really being enamored with the purpose for which they're given. So that's what I want to get to. And I think Peter helps us do that. That's why I want to read this in its entirety and then go back and look at verse 13. We're going to zoom in and we're going to dwell in verse 13 primarily today as we look at multiple texts that help, I think, illuminate this to us. So let's begin reading in 1 Peter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for or because of the obedience to Jesus Christ, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Then he he begins here in verse 3 to bring a blessing. Blessed be the God and Father. He blesses God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, a final rescue ready to be revealed in the last time or on the last day. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials or variegated trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Pay attention to the word revealed in revelation in this passage. Though you have not seen him. You love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls concerning the salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ And the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that you have been that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore. All that said, and then he comes to verse 13 and says, because of all this, therefore. Preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, with phobos throughout the entire time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 13 refers to the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word is apocalypsis. It's the full disclosure, the complete revelation of who he is when he comes. He says, in light of that, in light of who is coming and you're being there when he comes, you're seeing him when he comes, then then don't be conformed to the passions of this world any longer because He is holy and in him you have been made holy and you will be holy. Therefore, live holy. This is a very practical purpose for which he brings out this eschatological truth. And in verse 13, he he starts it off with this transitional word. Therefore, he's saying after after basically comforting these weary and exiled and very, I guess you could say, even persecuted saints. By, by after comforting them with God's promises to us that are in Christ in verses 1 to 12, he goes on in verse 13 to say, this is what you ought to do as a result of what you already have in Christ. In 1 to 3, Peter is, is giving us indicatives. He indicates in 1 to 3 how, how God calls us to salvation by his sovereign grace. And, and he sets us apart through the divine work of God, the Holy Spirit. And, and then he causes us to be regenerated or born again 
By the washing away of our sins through the blood of Christ Jesus, God the Son. We have the Trinity spoken of in these indicatives. And in verses 4 to 9, he goes on, Peter goes on to indicate that we are also not just saved by God's grace, kept by Christ's work and the Spirit's presence, but we are also protected now, presently, protected by the power of God, presently and eternally. Now, he's saying all this to set them up to verse 14. In light of all that you have, don't live like the pagans any longer. In light of what's coming, stop doing what you've always done and look to Christ. You will one day be conformed perfectly to his image when he comes again. He's indicating, look at what you have in light of what he's going to do. When he comes and in 10 to 12, he, he goes on to indicate that that our salvation, our salvation is definite. It will come to pass according to God's word of promise. It was given prophetically and is given completely to us in the word of God. This is all indicated in 1 to 12. He's indicating that, that, look, look, this is what God has already done for you by his sovereign grace. This is what he's done. And in verse 13, he says, therefore, here's what you are to do. Here's the command from God in light of what he's already done and what he's going to do yet in the future. Here's how you are to respond to these commands As you see the power of God's grace and the great promises that we have now in Christ, it should change the way you live. It reminds me of the end of chapter, the end of second Peter, rather, when he talks about in light of these things that are coming, how should you then live? That's what he's doing here in this first chapter, first Peter here in this section of scripture. We see something, I think, very interesting and very important to our theology in general and to our understanding of sanctification. It, it seems, as you look through Scripture, you'll see this as the consistent theme. Peter is moving from what is called the indicative to the imperative. He indicates something true about what God's already done. Then he says, here is the command, the imperative. This is how you are to respond. He's saying, these, these commands here that I'm giving you in 13 to 19... They come after what I've revealed to you about what God has already done for you in Christ Jesus. And the commands simply reveal what we should do in response to God's great grace. Church, that's how sanctification works. In response to the promises, in response to the power, in response to the grace we've been given in Christ. Here's how we ought to live. In light of the great promise that's coming that he refers to in verse 13, here's how we ought to live now, because one day this will be the reality. We will be made holy, new body in glory with Christ himself when he is revealed. So let me give you an outline. In verse 13, Peter, Peter tells us what we are to do presently in light of God's great grace and our future hope in Christ. Number one. Here's what you're to do. Prepare your minds for immediate action in the present. In light of what's coming, here's how you ought to live now. 
Prepare your minds for immediate action in the present. And secondly, fix your hope on God's full revelation that's coming in the future. Look at verse 13 again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope, your assurance fully, completely on the favor, the unmerited favor of God, on the grace that will be brought, will be brought, future tense, to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Church, you need to understand something about salvation. It is secured by God. It is granted to us by His grace. It's through the work of His Son, the sealing of His Spirit. And there is in it a sense that you, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved fully, glorified in the future. And he's referring to that final state here. At the revelation of Christ, we will see our final salvation. That's what he even talks about in verse 5. You're protected. This inheritance, which I've read different commentaries on this, and I think out of three down to five, as you read this in its context, I think the inheritance is Jesus. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for an appointed time. Right. And he's coming eventually to reveal it. That's what he goes on to say in verse five. It's kept there who by God's power are being guarded for us through faith for a salvation, a final rescue. Ready to be revealed in the last time. I really think if you study eschatology for any other reason than the practical purpose for which God has given it, you're just making an idol of the end times. You need to repent. I need to repent. I've done it. Been there, done that. I want to know about the end because of what's promised in the end is Jesus. He is the hope. And it's the hope in Jesus that I look forward to that changes me now practically as I struggle in life, go through tribulation and saints we will and persecution. The hope that I have in Jesus to deliver us ultimately and finally when he comes again in glory, that gets me through these practical things daily. That's Peter's argument. That's Paul's argument. Seems to be the New Testament's argument. So let's look at verse 13. I'm going to split it up into two pieces here, 13a and 13b. In 13a, we can see that the Lord commands us through Peter to, number one, prepare our minds for immediate action to bring Christ praise and exaltation presently. He wants us to be shaped by the promises presently. Prepare your mind by focusing on these promises that were just given to you in 3 to 12 So it'll change you immediately in this present time. So you can bring Christ praise not only on the last day, but presently until that day. You know, I I often in the past have prayed, Maranatha, I've often prayed, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, quicken us until you come. That's what he's saying here. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want to see this full revelation of your glory But in the meantime, prepare me for action. Prepare my mind for action in the present. That's what he says in 13a. Prepare your minds for action. The King James says this, I think, much more eloquently. Gird up the loins of your mind, which basically means bind up or girdle, right? Bind up, gather up your thoughts, put them in order. God is 
logical in his representation of our promises. He's theological, God-centered in the representation of his promises. He's basically saying to them, put these thoughts in order that's been given to you. Think biblically, think logically, think theologically based on what God has already promised you in Christ, what he's already done to save you. Let that now shape the way you live practically in this time, in this place, because this promise that's given to us in three to twelve, that is reality for us. But it's not yet. We have this inheritance. We have this salvation. But one day it's coming. It's already, but it's not yet. It is ours, though, as true as any promise that God has given to his elect throughout the generations. And if we think biblically, if we put our thoughts in order, we gird up our minds, we will look at the practical implications of this to our lives. It will change the way we respond to things like what's going to happen on Tuesday afternoon when all the polls come in. All the chaos that will break forth. It's the end. No, it's not. Could be. But there are many other things I think will take place before that happens. Maybe the end of America. True. But that's not the end. Christ's church will proceed on. When Peter says, bind up your thoughts, it's going to guard your mind to do this. That's his intention. This will keep you from stressing, from worrying, from being weary, from being tested in a way that just takes you beyond hope. He's saying, no, put your thoughts in order and you'll be able to face the persecution, the trials and tribulations and the exile that comes your way for following Christ. Rejoice. The king's coming. You're going to be with him when he comes. He's coming to reign and rule for all eternity. You have nothing to fear in this world. You are immortal, as Jonathan Edwards said, until God takes you home. When he says bind up here or prepare your minds for action, Peter's referring to how a man in that time period would have would have commonly taken their clothing, their loose ends of their robe and and cinched them around their their waist as a belt to prepare themselves for work or for action or for battle. That's what he's saying. Take those loose robes, pull them up through, tie them around so you can actually be active presently to do the work in front of you. And this was a very familiar oriental custom, a, a Hebrew tradition that came from the Passover. This is where he's drawing this from. Whenever the Israelites would eat the Passover meal, They would take their loose outer robe and they would gird it up around their waist to be ready for the flight out of Egypt. It reminded them of this. They were to remember in doing this that they were aliens in the land of slavery. And they were to do this in order to fix their minds on the one who would deliver them into the promised land in the future. And in that way, like the Israelites, we are to be preparing our minds We are to gird up the loins of our minds. We are to be prepared to flee from sin and focus on God's promised deliverer who's already came and who is going to come and complete this deliverance on the last day when Christ comes again. But for us to do that, Peter tells us in verse 13, we have to we have to tie up or gird up our minds If you're going to be ready for Christ coming and the trials that come between now and that time, you you have to have your mind focused. That's what he's simply saying. You have to tie up or gird up any thoughts that will distract you or hinder you 
from obeying Christ, from serving Jesus. Isn't that easy to do today? I mean, good grief. I turned off Facebook last week and I'm not going to turn it on for a while. I don't know when. Because it is such a distraction. It is like this strange voyeuristic act. I can't figure out most of the time. It's like I cannot not look at your post. And, and I have to look at it. I have to look at it. I have to dwell. And I go. And, and before no, I know it, there are hours that can go by. Absolutely wasted. Wasted. I think Piper said something about that one time. He said that there'll be no excuse on the last day for our lack of prayer in light of social media. I'm summarizing what he said. There are a lot of things that hinder us. There are a lot of things that take us off track from thinking about the things that are eternal. Not always bad things, but there are a lot of things that take us off thinking about what God has called us to do while we're here. I think about being a parent. That's a God-given responsibility and gift. But we can make an idol out of parenting, out of our kids. We can waste time trying to build a heavenly kingdom for them here on earth to make sure they're financially secure. Making sure that they're not ever hurt. And we can neglect the weightier things. The things of their soul. I've told my boys, every one of them, I do not care if you're ever prosperous unless it's prosperity that points to Christ. Money is useless in the kingdom. We need to understand we are not secured by anything in this world but Jesus Christ. Even the good thoughts that we have, even the good activities we do can drown out our passion for Christ and his praise if we're not careful. Our careers can do that. Our finances can do that. Our comfort, our seeking of all these things, possessions, good health. Those are all good things, but they can take our eyes off of serving Christ and his promised rewards that are coming in the future when he returns. This is not heaven. Heaven comes with the king of heaven. The king is coming. The rewards he brings are eternal. This world will perish and all that is in it. But the Lord of glory is coming to reclaim it. He's coming to restore it. To reconcile all things in creation. We need to put our hope in that. It seems like it's so easy today to, to as Americans because, you know, look, we have it extremely easy here. We have persecution. I get it. We do. But it's not the same as in Saudi Arabia, if you're a Christian. We have so much prosperity, comfort and peace here. We think this is heaven. We live as if this is our final destination. We live as if this is the final kingdom. All we got to do is make it a little nicer, a little prettier, a little better. And then we can just sit here and wait as Christ comes. No, Christ wants us to be aliens in this world, standing out until he comes. And that means we are going to suffer persecution and trials and hardships for his namesake. That is a promise given to all believers. That means if you have your eyes set on anything in this world aside from him, you will become discouraged and weary. So we have to look to Christ as the final hope and his return. Back in verse 13, I think we see why Peter says this and why he, he simultaneously gives us a command to prepare our minds for action. And then he says further, be sober minded. 
Get your minds prepared, gird up your thoughts, get your thoughts collected, and then you need to have a sober mind. We're to have a mind that is clear, a mind that is prepared for the battle ahead. That's what he's referring to. He's saying, be sober, be clear minded, be ready for action like a soldier that's going into battle. Here's what you need to know about that. When he's referring to things like this, they understood very well what Roman soldiers would go through. As they prepared for battle, they had seen it. They'd been the recipients of their their warring. They knew what it was like. And when a Roman soldier were, were gearing up for battle, they would gird up the loins. Right. So they would gird up their loins for action, like he's telling these saints here. And, and they, when they did that, they did it with a very sober spirit. And here's why they, they knew as they girded up their loins, this wasn't a time for joking. This wasn't a time for comfort. This wasn't a time for kidding around. This wasn't a time for playing. They were about to go into a life or death battle. They were going to die possibly that day. And their minds were sober. They were sober in their spirit. They were serious. That's what he's saying to the saints here and to us. If we want to honor Christ, our Savior, as king, now as well as on that day, we must take our calling seriously. We are soldiers of Christ. We are his ambassadors. And as such, we are called to live differently than this world. We need to have a sober mind about the way we live. We are called to be holy, for he is holy. Holy meaning separated unto God's purpose and use. That means you can't play around with the world. That means you can't be as close to the world and act like the world and talk like the world, sound like the world, and still be an effective soldier in the kingdom of God. That won't work. A soldier with a dirty scabbard and a dirty sword will die in battle. He will not be able to pull it out. He will not be able to take off the arm or the head of the enemy because it's defiled for lack of care. We are to be sober about the time that we are in. This is not to be a downer. This is a reality. You are not your own. You have been bought with the price, the blood of Jesus. Your life is not your own anymore. You are his soldier, his ambassador, his representative. Serve him well. He is worthy. The Apostle Paul seems to think the same thing. Go with me to Philippians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Church, here's why we are commanded in Peter and in Paul's writings to be sober and to stand firm and be ready for a battle against sin. Here's why. Our Lord Jesus did that for us. The Lord Jesus shed his own blood to save us. He, he conquered. 
in a battle that we could never win. The Lord Jesus girded up his own loins and was sober in battle to conquer sin in our place. Therefore, we ought to set our minds on things above. We ought to be sober in our thinking, gird up our thoughts. We should take God's gift of salvation seriously. We, we should we should take Christ's promise, reward and return soberly, seriously, because here's why. When Jesus comes again on the last day, the day of the Lord, when Christ comes again, it will be a fearful and glorious day. No doubt it will be both. It'll be both. Christ will be coming on that day in victory and battle array to rescue his own and judge the world. The lamb is coming to make war and to rescue his own. Look with me at Matthew 24. Verse 42. This is what the day will entail. Notice the warnings in this that are presently given to pay attention until this day comes. Verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming... He would have stayed awake and would not have left his house, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. That sounds a lot like Peter. For the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. He's sober. He's he's girding up the thoughts of his mind. He says, truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to him, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour, he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites, the pretenders. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The reward comes and the judgment comes on the same day. Revelation 19 refers to the same thing. A fearful and glorious day. Fearful for the unbeliever. The sinner who is without faith in Christ and glorious for those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness. He judges and makes war. This is Jesus, the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. His eyes are like a flame of fire on his head are many crowns, many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I truly believe, saints, that is what Paul is referring to in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
But the catching up of all the dead and the living together behind the robe of Christ as he comes in glory and fury. We're there with him. All of those in Christ, all the elect of all time are gathered together for his victorious return. Verse 15 says from his mouth comes a sharp sword. There'll be people that will try to oppose him on that day, but they do not prevail. With that sword in his mouth, with which to strike the nations, and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds they, they fly direct, that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who is in his presence in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's a frightening day for the unbeliever. It is a frightening day for the unbeliever. In their arrogance, their boldness, their rebellion and pride, they think they can stand in their own strength, crying, I am at peace, I have comfort, I'm safe. But when the king comes, he reveals the truth. You are destitute, you are poor, you are filthy and defiled. And when I come, I will war against you for rejecting the truth. It's a frightening day for the unbeliever, but it's also a glorious day for the soldier of Christ. When we read stuff like this, is it frightening to you today? Is this a frightening text to you? If you're an unbeliever, this should be a frightening text. But it doesn't have to be. Because the same king that comes in glory and wrath on that day is the king of salvation, the Lord Jesus himself, who laid his life down in our place to grant us his righteousness and his forgiveness for all eternity. And the same king who comes as judge can be your savior if you but look to him, trust in him today. Think about this. Are you are, are you even as Christians, are you prepared for this day? Are you thinking about this day? Church, this day is coming more assuredly than your next breath. It's coming. It's a promise of God. Jesus is coming to do these things that we see in this text and reward his people on that day. Let me ask you this question as Christians. When was the last time you thought about that day? How about this? When was the last time you prayed for that day to come? Why not? Because you like the comfort of this world too much. We don't want it to end. We have lost loved ones. I'm included in that. And so you know what we pray? Come quickly, Lord Jesus, but quicken me until you come. Make me a faithful soldier of the cross. Make me your ambassador. 
make me faithful in the light of what's coming in the future. Just think about what that would do to our witness if we live like that. Thought about that every day. It might actually cause trivial things to fade away and spiritual things to take their place. That's a good thing. So maybe we need to think about this coming reality a little more often, a little more seriously, a little more soberly. I think we should do that if we want to honor Jesus now as well as on that day and follow his commands. Look back at 1 Peter 1.13b. Here in this, we see another command given to us in this one verse. Here we're commanded to prepare our minds and change our actions by doing something very particular. By fixing our hope. By fixing our hope, our assurance. Fixing it on what? On God's full revelation of our future grace that's coming in Christ. The future favor of God that's going to be realized when Christ returns. He's saying, look, set your hope fully on the favor, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. At the apocalypsis of Christ Jesus, at the revelation of Christ, set your mind on this, set your hope on that. This is the day of Christ's second coming, the last day. Saints, think about this On, on that day, the day of the Lord, Jesus will come to reveal his Full glory and our final salvation. It's a glorious day. Set your hope on that day. Set your hope on that day and it will change you today. That's Peter's argument. When he speaks of hope here, he's talking about confident assurance, expectation. It's not a wish. It's an absolute This hope is based on Jesus' completed work of redemption in the past and God's future promises to us in Christ. That's why he says, set your mind on this. It's based on something that's imperishable, unfading, reserved for you. And it's coming. Church, the, the already of Christ's saving work in the past is what secures the not yet promises of God in the future. All the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. That's why I think Peter commands us to set our hope on this, on his promised completion, on Christ's atoning work in the past. This promised completion will be fully manifest when Jesus returns at the end of this age. And Peter's telling us, look, we ought to have our minds fixed on this. Here's what you need to have your minds fixed on. It's a big word, but I'll throw it out to you. You need to have your minds fixed on the eschatological promise of our final and full salvation that is in Christ. That salvation, that end promise, that purpose for your salvation will be fully revealed when Jesus returns to claim his victory on the day of consummation. The day that we read about back in 1 Thessalonians 4. Go back there with me. 4, verse 15. This is the day of consummation. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who, are, who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. The word is harpazo, or we get the word rapture from this in Latin. 
caught up together with them in the clouds to meet Apentesis, to meet, to meet him in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. There is this gathering of all the elect, the dead and the living. They're gathered up together, caught up together to display his glory in the heavenlies as he comes in descendant glory. As he's descending from his throne to this earth to show forth the great work in which he accomplished in redeeming sinners like us. To display that out of these sinners, these clay pots, he's going to make trophies of his grace that will shine throughout eternity. This is the eschatological promise of our final and full salvation. He returns to claim his victory on the day of consummation. On that day, let me give you this as I conclude. On that day, Christ will return visibly, audibly, and powerfully on the earth. No secret rapture. No hidden catching away. (laughs) You read the text. It's loud and it's glorious and it's powerful. The dead will be raised. The living will be transformed. They'll be caught up together behind him to follow Christ as he descends in victory to judge the world and restore righteousness on the earth. It is his. He claims it. Created it. And he puts us here to glorify him in it. How often do you set your hope on this? How often do you set your hope on the final day of salvation? Do you even think about it? Be honest. You probably don't. Not much. Unless you're watching a really bad Christian movie. Left behind. Yeah. You need to be setting your hope on the final day of salvation because Peter's saying these commands that come to you in 13 down to 19, these commands are meant to help you focus your minds on all that God has already promised you in Christ Jesus. And part of that promise to us is revealed when he comes. We'll receive resurrected and glorified bodies. We'll have a body that's transformed and designed to magnify, to glorify Christ And his glory throughout all eternity in a world to come. Look with me in another passage as I conclude. 1 Corinthians 15. We see what I'm talking about displayed here. Focus your mind on the promise that we have in Christ that's revealed here. That includes a resurrected and glorified body that will magnify Christ throughout eternity on this new world, this new earth, the new heaven and new earth that he brings forth when he comes, when he comes. One event, one event. And yes, you've already figured out my eschatological position, I'm sure. That's okay. If you think you know what it is, tell me later. You could be right. First Corinthians 15, verse 42. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, the last Adam, rather, became a living, a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. 
The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall. What a great hope. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trump will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. That's a direct reference back to First Thessalonians four fifteen to 18 and the trumpet that's spoken of there. He says, here's why this is going to take place. For this perishable, this decaying body must also put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must also put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, hmm, these indicatives lead to an imperative. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Hmm. Sounds a lot like first Peter one thirteen. Church, do you, do you rejoice in that hope that's spoken of here in first Corinthians 15? Do you rejoice in the truth about what's going to take place in the future when Christ returns? Does this hope, if you rejoice in this hope, does this hope actually change the way you live in the present? This hope is meant to purify your actions today, and it should. Because as you read the New Testament, you learn that this hope is the telos. It is the end. It is the God-ordained purpose of our salvation, that we would be made like the man from heaven, made like the Lord Jesus, the Savior and King, who's coming to redeem us fully on the last day. He's coming to reveal his glory and his power as he transforms the living and the dead and brings them into their eternal abode with him. This is the end of your salvation. This is the purpose of your redemption is to be made like the man of heaven, your savior and king, Jesus. That's the promise that's meant to preserve us and presently sanctify us. And it's the promise that secures us. In the future, when Christ is revealed in in full glory in the future, you need to understand this so it'll change the way you live presently. When he he is revealed in his full full glory in the future, we will be made like him forever. I can't even imagine that. I really can't. I've tried. I care nothing about walking through walls like Jesus did. I care nothing about that. I care about sin being eradicated from my flesh forever. That's what I want. Because when sin is gone, then I can reflect the glory of my king fully, without shame, without guilt, without fear. I know he has made me pure for his own praise. He is coming to do this when he comes. He'll give us new bodies. That will be capable of dwelling in his presence, experiencing face to face fellowship with your savior and your king and your redeemer. 
In light of all that, as we think about eschatology now and next month, here's what I want you to do. Therefore, set your minds on the already, but not yet in Christ. Do that because this future hope that we see in the scriptures is meant to comfort the weary and the suffering saints. And it's also meant to transform our actions and produce sanctification in us until he comes. Let's pray that that takes place. Heavenly Father, we thank you for you have provided for us the hope of salvation, full and complete in the giving forth of your Son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for not only coming to serve as our substitute, to live the righteous life we could never live and die the death we deserved, and then rise from the grave on the third day to declare that your sacrifice was acceptable in the Father's sight. We thank you for that, but we also thank you for the reality that you will one day come again to fully save all your people, to bring them all into the place you have prepared for us from before the foundation of the world, the hope that we have in the coming kingdom here on earth, in your presence, never separated by sin, never defiled by our failures to honor you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for sealing this promise to us. We thank you for helping us to see it. We pray you would set our minds on this, that we would be serious, we would be sober-minded as we think about this, but we would also have what Paul or Peter rather said in that same section of Scripture. We would have joy inexpressible, full of doxa, full of glory, at the hope that we have in your promises that will be fulfilled in Christ. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.